Welcome to the cycle, guys. I have been waiting in anticipation for my next guest, Ankle to Heal, so that we could finally have this conversation today. And who is that guest? Well, I'm happy to say today I have a really exciting um, a, a guest coming on the show. Her name is Jennifer Ancona. She's the smartest woman in politics that you may never have heard of, but you're hearing about today. And um, she is also the co-curator and the vice president of a really terrific progressive messaging organization that I've had the privilege to do some consulting work with, but was is my favorite of the messaging revolution think tank shops, uh, and that is Way to Win. So I'm really excited to have Jennifer on today. Hi, Jennifer. Hi, Rachel. Thank you so much for having me. How's the ankle doing? Uh, it is healing slowly but surely as yeah. our bones do these days. <laughs> yeah, yes. they do. I, you know, I always break things doing things that I shouldn't be doing, like riding a scooter, electric scooter. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I wish I had a more fantastical story. It was literally just like walking in the wrong way off of a curb, you know? Yeah, <laughs> and that's what happened. makes like Biden's so, age so exploitable is that humans are, <laughs> are prone to foibles that injure ourselves doing stupid stuff. Like off <laughs> curb, you know. So yeah. anyway, but it's so great to have this conversation finally because last month Wade Wynn released a really important report, and I, I can't stress how important this analysis is. So we're going to focus heavily on that. Mm -hmm. But before we do, I want to tell the audience about Way to Win, about the work it's doing alone and with its partners in the last couple of election cycles to bring progressive messaging up to speed and make it competitive against the Republican Party. So could mm -hmm. you start off and just kind of talk about Way to Win, its mission, its its you know its evolution between 2020 and 2022, and uh, some of the exciting work that it did in the 2022 midterms, helping to blunt the red wave. Yes, absolutely. And thank you so much for the opportunity. So way to win. Uh, we started after the aftermath of Trump being elected in 2016. So we were part of a surge of people coming on, you know, saying we have to do things differently. We know that we got into this mess in a, by a certain kind of way of doing politics. We're not going to get out of it by just doubling down on that way. We have to think about a new way, a new way to win. And so uh, what it is, is a national hub for donors and strategists. And we have a data-based approach to political funding that wins elections and ultimately advances policy. That's one thing we really believe in. It's, it's not just about electing Democrats. It's about electing Democrats to pass policy that improves people's lives. And that we're really about building lasting power in the states. We understand that the country is changing. And the reality of our system is that we're going to need to build more power in more states. Um, there was there was always a very much a reliance on just a few kind of Midwest battleground states. You might think of as the blue wall. All. Those states are very important. And we felt we needed to be expanding into more places like Arizona and Georgia and Texas and North Carolina and the even in the deeper parts of the South where we're starting to build in places like Mississippi and Louisiana and South Carolina, where demographics are changing and we have to actually meet those changes with real smart political strategy. So we have focused our strategy on really a three-pronged approach um, that starts with, you know, really bringing scaled resources 
two political power shifts that don't just end when the election comes and goes. It's about building a lasting power and infrastructure across the states and in communities. And so we focus on um, funding work that does long-term year-round community power building. So where you have people really working in a particular city or in a state uh, that's actually expanding the number of people who are involved in civic participation in politics. Um, two, we focus on like this idea of kind of co-governance. Like you want to elect people who actually support what the community wants, not electing people who are going to fight against the community once they're in office. So this idea of um, candidates who really reflect the communities and who are going to be more bold around the kind of policies they're pushing. And then third, which we'll talk more about, is uh, is the narrative strategy, which for us is like, we want to uh, make sure what we're doing in in these states is pushing narratives that shape a multiracial and a feminist inclusion. So, you know, we really believe we're very much rooted in our narrative strategy that we have a really diverse multiracial coalition that includes ideological diversity. It includes age diversity. It's a big, diverse coalition. And that's fundamentally a different task than the Republicans have. And so we need to understand that when we build our narrative strategies. And that's one of the things that Way to Win really focuses on. So all of those things really work together um, to form a comprehensive strategy to win. And since we started, we have moved close to $300 million toward that strategy across some key swing states, including those more South and Southwest facing states that I mentioned. And that's some serious scrap right there, right? This is no, you know, wrinkly dinky operation, right? Yeah. So Way to Win has been really on the front lines of getting more aggressive on messaging, right? Yes. And, and yes. setting narratives. And that's how you guys came under my radar. I, I'll never forget because it was off of Greg Sargent, who I think is a mutual journalistic uh, friend um, mm -hmm. of the movement. Um, and he did, he, he printed an analysis that way to win had done for 2020, mm -hmm. which showed a huge messaging um, asymmetry between Republicans and Democrats. And we're going to, I'm not going to talk about those specifically, because we're going to get into that in yeah. a minute, but huge messaging asymmetries. And it was so exciting to me because it was the first quantification that I had seen that really shows in empirical form, the asymmetry. It's not subjective. It's not just, this is what I think. And this is because I live in Virginia or don't live in a swing state. And it's based on, on, a, on an aggregate data that, you know, the data don't lie. And so as soon as I saw that, I was like, these are people I want to know. These are people I want to work with and reached out to you guys. And so, you know, in 2022, before we get into the ad analysis work that you've yeah. done, let's ask, I just want to ask you to, to highlight a, an effective project that you guys worked on and promoted in 2022 that you think had a diff, was a difference maker, because I really yeah. want to encourage people to donate to Way to Win, um, <laughs> a real difference maker in doing what I, I cannot stress enough, should have been impossible to do. We should have lost the Senate. We should have gotten swamped in the House. We didn't. And the reason is because people like you working in the front lines of message revolution, um, the messaging revolution movement were there to say, not so fast, my friends, this is what we've done in the past. And this is what we need to do in the future. So just lay out something, you know, some detail about what happened in 2022 that you feel way to win really met the moment with. Yeah, thank you. 
Well, the analysis that you mentioned where we first got connected was in 2021 coming out of 2020. And partially it was because we had seen a real kind of a failure in 2020 for there to have been a national narrative in the presidential race that we could see actually affecting across other races. So we saw, you know, we of course won at the presidential level, which was fantastic, but we did see kind of a lack of message coordination that affected what happened in the House where we actually lost every single race that was a toss-up race in 2020. So we wanted to dig into that, which is why we did that research so that we could provide real um, real empirical data that this wasn't, you know, just our hunch, but we could actually show what, what happened. And so that was a very much much a, a spur, like a jumping off point for what we wanted to do in 2022. Just, just seeing that analysis and knowing we were going to be facing these historic headwinds. Anyway, we just knew that looking at the data coming into 22, there was historic headwinds, you know, very few midterms you've ever seen a president's party actually win or, or blunt losses. So that was one thing. The, the media narrative was absolutely uh, just terrible. I mean, from there being just a hundred stories a day about how bad Democrats are at messaging was like one thing we were noticing. And it's like, <laughs> you know, you're losing when the stories are about how you don't have a message. So, no doubt. you know, <laughs> so we knew that this was going to be a problem. And we started off really early, like digging in um, and kind of building this approach that we've built out which we call um, listening plus art plus science. And so it's this really deep, deep approach. Uh, it's it's built off of actually in the Silicon Valley world, the agile model where it's like iterative and, you know, you're taking in research and data, you're, you're making content and creating things, and then you're evaluating how that content works. And then you're deploying that out in the field and then continuing to learn. So we really took seriously this idea of deep listening and understanding inside the minds of these gettable multiracial voters that we knew we needed to get excited about 2022 and persuaded that the Democrats were the best choice in 2022. So that that big coalition that's really diverse, we were we felt like in 2020, the focus of the research that we were seeing was really pretty narrow. It was it tended to be very focused on like the, the Obama Trump voters. There was a lot of research on that slice, which of course is important. It just isn't the only slice. You know, there's many more voters that we need to understand. Maybe they're not going to vote for Republicans, but they might choose not to vote at all. And that is actually a form of persuasion that we need to do on them, right? To right, in exactly. order to get to get the stakes clear. And so we we did that. We we studied in a really deep way, hundreds, thousands of voters, really listening and understanding where they were coming from and how we could then move them. And so we started to see some patterns in the data. Uh, and one of the things we were seeing is like we saw very early, even before, way before all the leaks on Dobbs, we saw abortion is a mobilizing issue. We could see it just from um, the Texas uh, the Texas court rulings that came out in the summer of 21, that if we talked about uh, what the Republicans were doing on abortion, if we framed it as part of how extreme they have become, mm -hmm. given their attack on the U.S. Capitol, given the fact that they were coming out against life-saving vaccines, tying those issues together and 
calling them out hardcore for being out of touch with Americans was a really important message. So we knew we saw that very early on and we were promoting that out to all the <laughs> insiders and all the people, you know, coming off of our research in 2020, which showed from the ad spending they were calling us extreme in the ads. Yes. We weren't calling them extreme at all. And that was a huge warning sign for us, given that we just saw them attack the Capitol with violence on January 6th. So that was a huge thing. And then in the lead up, you know, as more time went through, so I think we succeeded. Like we got pushback about it. People were like, I don't know. I don't think we can call them extreme. And, you know, it's a little bit, it's going to backfire. You know, we got pushback, but I think we and many others, CAP Action, I think played a really big role in pushing the MAGA Republican line. And so ultimately people started to embrace that idea a bit more. Um, And then, of course, in the lead up to 22, with the congressional hearings on January 6th, that really helped a lot. What also really helped was the kind of crazy people they were nominating in these contests. That was helping reinforce our frame. And then in the kind of right around Dobbs is when we started to see more patterns in the testing we were doing around um, freedom. Like the idea that, you know, the extreme and, and making that contrast around who the Republicans are was important. But that also we could use this frame of freedom and freedoms, plural, especially to tie all of these issues together and to say this is what we're for. Democrats are protecting our freedoms. And so that that kind of overall message frame, like the MAGA Republicans are going to take us backward. Democrats are the ones who are protecting our freedoms. We, the voters, can actually do this. We've done it before. We've rejected Trump before. We can do it again. That basic message architecture we then used and spread as much as we possibly could with hundreds of grassroots groups, with regular weekly message briefings, with all kinds of amplification on social media. And we started to really see it take off and pick up. And by the time we got to September, we were seeing polling, national polling showing people actually were saying this election was going to be about their freedoms. And then after the election, when we polled people, Democrats and Republicans and independents who voted in the election, it was very clear that they uh, what they said was that, um, you know, they would say the economy is their top issue. If you ask anybody, they always say it's the economy. Always. (laughs) Yes. But then when we asked them, well, what about abortion? What about democracy? And kind of put those together. The concerns about democracy and the concerns about abortion freedom over together overtook people's concerns about economics and inflation. And that is that is just partially how we beat back that narrative. Because you also remember there was a lot of doom and gloom that was coming out around September. Oh, yes. We were remember. Yeah, but it didn't work. I mean, thankfully, the all that groundwork we had done to kind yeah. of make this the narrative. And then honestly, the president did a very good job also highlighting those issues. I also think like, you know, the fact that Nancy Pelosi's husband was attacked and there, we started to see this extreme violence. And then that news was getting like the president talking about it and all these people in power talking about it. It it was able to reinforce that message groundwork we had laid collectively. And then it, it ultimately, that is how we, that is how we had these historic wins. We, we would not have seen those historic wins if we relied on 
an old message playbook, which would have said, you know, like, don't talk about those issues. Like that's, you know, <laughs> and, anyway, and that's now I'm I wanted to, the to kind of let you riff openly about like, you know, 2022, because so many people on my timeline and, you know, in my orbits, you know, I hear this all the time, Well, when are we going to change? When are we going to change? And I don't think people appreciate how much change has been already pushed through this system. Right. Yeah. And yeah. I think the 2022 report is going to do a fine job of showing where the change made a difference, but also, also where more change is needed, right? Absolutely. <laughs> I do think it's important for average people, people listening to this pod, um, you know, obviously above average people because they're listening to this pod, <laughs> but to understand like, no, that this movement towards message reform is not only happening, it has happened. And yes. it happened to such an extent in 2022, we held off a giant red wave, right? Yes. So um, let's yes. move right into the report because there's something so important that you said. And I and I think this for me, like when I was in January, February, leaving Strike Pack, going, oh my God, like the, if I can achieve one mission goal in life, it will be that in 2022 we run ads telling America that the Republican Party's extremist cult, right? Right. <laughs> and we can see that right in your 22 analysis, which is obviously yes. going to be linked here on the pod for people to see, as as well as uh, discussed in my blog post about it. But I think people need to know. It was the first time ever that Democrats outspent Republicans on branding Republicans as extremists or mm -hmm. radical. And mm -hmm. Democrats spent three times the amount of money Republicans did calling us extremist radicals. So, you know, not only did we finally get in the game, we brought the full born fruit to bear against mm -hmm. them on that messaging regime. To mm -hmm. contrast that in the 22 report, you, you um, note that there's still much messaging in the democratic orbit that's focused on bipartisanship mm -hmm. that we see things that are just you know, might astound people, you mm -hmm. know, such as, the losing campaigns of Sherry Beasley in North Carolina, right? The losing almost lost campaign of the Cortez master strategy in Nevada. Mm -hmm. Tim Ryan's campaign who managed to spend a million dollars attacking somebody. Guess who? Barack Obama. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Not Donald Trump, Barack Obama. Yeah. So, you know, when we think about like where we're coming from, we are coming from an orbit where the preferred modus, the status quo playbook that Jennifer and I referred to is to, um, you know, I love Donald Trump. Actually, Trump's done some great things. Democrats are kind of bad too. Both parties have let you down, what I call in my my forthcoming book, the apologetic Democrat model. De mm. Democrats finally steered a lot of the ship, not enough, but a lot of the ship over to this new system. And, and mm -hmm. uh, I was kind of wondering too, like what, what are your thoughts on particularly abortion advertising. I know the analysis finds that we spent $116 million. 48% of the House spending was on abortion. Just 28% of the Senate was on abortion, which I think kind of helps explain the underperformance in a couple of those really winnable states. North Carolina, Florida, Ohio, these should not be unwinnable states to the Democratic Party, right? With the yeah. right strategy, we can reach them. So, um, you know, what are your thoughts on abortion? What do you find too? in terms of content on abortion that people tended to focus on? Yeah. Well, it, I think the key thing was that abortion was such a salient issue because of what happened with Roe being overturned. You know, this is something that abortion advocates have been saying was going to happen for many years and even decades. No one really believed them. And I think ultimately seeing that transpire, just seeing that 
right that so many people had taken for granted, I think being stripped away was a huge just moment in the world that created a salience for abortion. So for example, if, I mean, we don't have all of this data, but I, I know roughly, you know, did Democrats ever talk about abortion before this happened? Not really. Like the, you know, was not actually an issue that was very um, prevalent in any of the ad spending historically. Right. It, you know, and it just wasn't something that they surfaced. But because abortion became such a salient issue for people, it forced them to talk about it. And the way that they talked about it was around contrasting with the Republicans' extreme agenda. It kind of forced them to make this larger argument about freedom and, and extremism. So it was really key. And then combining that with the things that were happening about democracy, whether it was the January 6th hearings, the wild people they were they nominated on the GOP side who were election deniers, like that kind of stuff really made a difference. It it, it compounded that story. So I will say I I thought that that was w- one of the most interesting things was just realizing how not only did they just talk about abortion generally, they did talk about abortion in the context of this larger argument that was a real contrast point on Republicans. And that's what was really important. You know, I will say, I think there's room to grow in terms of how they talked about abortion, because one of the things we put in our report was like, talking about rape and incest as exceptions, as not having exceptions for rape and incest was by far the largest right. kind of portion of the argument that was being made. And while that that probably is effective in the short term, it's just something to think about because it, it's not necessarily the most effective messaging longer term to get people bought in because it can create a little bit of stig- stigma actually around abortion and create this idea that there's a good abortion and there's a bad abortion. And ultimately, the kind of message that we need to be really pushing is more around this, these are important decisions that need to be made by people, families, women, men, doc, with their doctor in consultation with their own, however they want to do it in their own lives, you know, their faith, their doctor, that whole idea that it shouldn't be about government, but it should be actually about us making our own decisions. That was the most effective argument that we saw. And that's what I think we need to keep leaning into versus relying on the rape and incest exceptions, because ultimately, yeah, we're trying to we're trying to take take that idea away that we need to be thinking about whatever is going on with the woman or the person. I agree. Like I don't <laughs> you know? want people to be focused on this. I mean, so yes, it, it can be an effective ad, certainly, but it's not the only effective way to talk about abortion. Yeah. And one of the limitations that we're I think we're seeing it's more focus group type data, but from you know, story after story of women who've had medical emergencies. And we see, well, I wasn't even, this was not even on my radar. Like nobody thinks they're going to have a crisis pregnancy, right? So Mm -hmm. it's a much broader net to cast in the freedoms frame, bodily autonomy, you know, big government kind of frame that I think was so successful in Kansas in particular. So, um, all right. So another thing that you guys found, because I know we're running out of time, but this is just such an important report, is that- (laughs) That uh, Republicans had a centralized message. It was, you know, from the state. I mean, you guys didn't analyze the state ledger, but I can assure you, from the state legislature all the way up, yes, they focused on blaming Biden and Pelosi, branding them yes. as inflation raising, crime loving, you know, yeah. disasters basically. Yeah. And and that message is is very focused and and honed in. Where Democrats 
really never mention any national leaders, uh, right. certainly not Democrats, right? When they mention right. Democrats, they actually mention them much more common in a negative way. So AKA right. Tim Ryan, you yeah. know, probably a lot of the ads in, in North Carolina and Florida were focused on they're not brand brand down, right? They're they're yeah. telling people, yep, there is something fundamentally flawed about Democrats, but I'm not one of those Democrats. And as soon yeah. as you're doing that, you've lost the war. It doesn't even matter what else you say at that point, because mm-hmm. to me, it's pretty obvious that the voter mind's going to be like, well, you know, if if you aren't confident in who you are and what you represent, how can I be confident? Exactly. Right. And exactly. no one's going to sell your product for you. You have to sell the product. So I thought that was exactly. really astounding. And then what did you guys find in terms of Biden? Biden is one of the most transformational presidents since FDR. Okay. In terms Absolutely. Of policy passed. Yes. But we know that most people don't pay attention to news and politics. They aren't us. They aren't even anything close to us. And you can see this reflected in public opinion data, which of course Republicans say the economy is corrupt, but it goes far beyond that. It goes up into independence and even into the democratic bucket. And that that is no matter how hard the White House keeps talking about credit claiming and sending Biden out to bridges in Kentucky not breaking through, right? And you saw a real issue in this in the advertising in 2022. Can you talk a little bit about the Democratic Party candidates, consultants, party, whatever, their failure to make sure people see the Biden agenda as successful? Yeah, absolutely. Because you're right. I mean, Biden did his job. Biden is doing his job. And this is not in any way meant to comment on what Biden is doing. Biden wasn't even on, Biden wasn't on the ballot in 2022. Right. You know, it's it, he's the president. But we did see a huge missed opportunity in that the Democrats who were running, you know, after having presided over this amazing policy, over these amazing policy wins, all the way from 21, all the way through into this, you know, early summer of 22, they did not run on those successes. They didn't tell a comprehensive story, a meta narrative that could help people understand what were we doing over the last couple of years? You know, how does this relate to you? How can we tie things like the climate, you know, the green energy and and climate, um, proposals that were really historic to all of the work to build more manufacturing here in America to um you creating these um, millions of new jobs that were really helping people in a different way with better better benefits and, and better pay like these elements that around the economy in a macro way but also the the literal benefits that right. concretely that people are getting the democrats who were running in 2022 uh, fe- on the federal level, did not did not tell that story. They they did really didn't. I mean, we didn't see much evidence of it at all. And so, contrasting with what you said, I mean, the the consistency and the intensity of the of the GOP narrative on this stuff was absolutely incredible. I mean, it's absolutely incredible. It's it's Biden. Well, it's it's a fine tuned machine now, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And they and if if like. $170 million of advertising in con- you know, swing districts and swing states, all the time people are just seeing how it's infl- how Biden caused inflation. It's Biden yeah. spending. It's all the spending and it caused inflation. And now you can't afford gas and now you can't afford groceries. Like, yeah. And it actually resonates with people's real life experience because, yeah. yeah, things got more expensive. But no one was explaining what that meant on the other side. Like, 
the fact that corporations were part of price gouging, which then led to part partially led to this. The fact that it was a pandemic that we were coming out of that made things out of our control. The fact that inflation was a global phenomenon where the U.S. was actually doing much better than many other places in the world. Like we weren't making that argument in a direct way at all. Yeah. And and that's what I that's why we called it out as a learning for 24, which, of course, yesterday was a great day and for Bidenomics. And that yeah. was fantastic to see. And I just think it's not only Biden, like we need to hear that we need to, all of us need to be taking that in. And I think we all need to be on that same kind of lockstep story to ultimately give people that sense. Because honestly, when we hear voters now, they, they want to, they like us, (laughs) they like these policies, but we haven't given them anything to hook their brains onto. And so they're just right now kind of parroting back what they've been hearing from the other side. So that's my biggest warning sign for in, going into 24. That's exactly right. It's the issue that I'm focusing on too, is how do we convince people to centralize messaging? You know, we're leaving our best messaging disposal, op, you know, operatives, AKA members of Congress and the Senate, you know, just lackadaisical. Some of them are terrific messengers. Most of them aren't. Most of them <laughs> don't message at all. In fact, they're almost completely invisible in terms of messaging. Mm-hmm. So, you know, getting our ship to turn and, 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 and build on the progress of 2022 is is super important. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the same people who um, told folks like us that we had led the party astray by focusing too much on abortion. And in October, as the, you know, Republican pollsters were flooding the 538 model with quite obvious party polls, (laughs) you know, and we were, and and I know I myself, I know you guys are like, nope, keep going, you know, and I think it was really really, um, you know, validated in the results. And I, but but here's the thing that people need to understand. We still spent six times the amount of money running ads on bipartisanship in the house Mm -hmm. and four times in the Senate. And it, and not only is it not these, these ads tend to test very well because voters like positive, get together shit. It's just that in in actual human behavior, it doesn't necessarily resonate. Exactly. So um yeah. You know, getting getting people to understand like if you're talking about how great your friends across the aisle are, while the rest of us are saying, hey, this is a dangerous extremist cult that's going to steal your freedom. Yeah. Right? It, it, un, not only it is undermined. it not effective, it's always been not effective. But I think the Tim Ryan campaign actually really showed it's absolutely opposite. It's effective in the wrong way because it undercuts yeah. our ability to go toe to toe with their very centralized, you know, cacophony of, of sound coming out of that coordinated yeah. messaging unit. So, yeah, I, I would just say my mantra on this is, bipartisanship is a necessary tactic for governing in a divided government or a closely divided government, which we're in and which we have been in for many a while and we probably will be in for the foreseeable future. It's a tactic. It is not a message. There and you so go. That's the difference. So <laughs> I'm really not. Like <laughs> yeah. And that we sh- that's what we need to be shouting from the rooftops. You can, yes, please do all the bipartisanship that you need to do to get things done for people. Yeah. But when you talk about it, don't talk about how great the other side is. Talk about how great you are. Yes. Talk about how you're the one fighting for people. Talk yes. about how, I mean, look at the default as an example. Talk about how we're the ones who are standing in the way of an absolute, complete upending of our economy that the Republicans were willing to do. Don't mm-hmm. talk about how great it was that they came to the table. You know, yeah, talk no about- doubt. Like brand, let's brand us as the ones who are fighting for people. Yep. We don't need to talk about bipartisanship. We can just do it. 
Yeah. And just because three Republicans vote on something doesn't mean you can't say Republicans voted to defund Social Security. Exactly. (laughs) So if you're a big money donor that happens to be listening to my pod and you're looking for a place where your bucks are going to have a bang, I hope we've proved the point that Way to Win is a definitely good investment. Uh, The work it's done so far to steer the messaging ship and to push these campaigns into a better campaigning posture has been absolutely instrumental in my opinion, and will be in a very difficult Senate map where it's clear that's where we're struggling still to get people to adapt to strategy. So Jennifer, it has been such a great conversation. I can't tell you how excited I am about the work you guys are doing and our continued, you know, friendship going forward. And uh, thanks for coming on the cycle today. Absolutely. Thank you so much, Rachel. And ditto back to you.